Well, good morning. Good morning and welcome to Twin Cities Church. If you are visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're in the midst here of our series in uh, the book of Daniel and eager to, to get into the Word. So join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for who you are. Um, Lord, we are so thankful that you are the God who is in control of human history, that you are a God who cares for us, um, a God who works in and through us and around us, uh, Lord, a God who does not leave us and forsake us. Uh, Lord, we just praise you for who you are, and Lord, we are, we are so eager for that day when justice will roll down, Lord, and your kingdom will come in its fullness. Oh, Lord, we are eager for you to come, so please, Lord, come soon and make all things new again. Lord, in the meantime, help us, strengthen us to understand and to grow in our knowledge of you and in our understanding and appreciation of your great love for us. Lord, help us to be faithful in this world, to be faithful to you, Lord, because you have been so faithful to us. Lord, open our hearts and our minds to your word this morning. Lord, help us to see who you are and what you have done. In your son's name we pray, amen. Like I said, we're in week three here of our series out of the book of Daniel, and it's, it feels timely, right, going through so much that our culture is going through right now to be going through the book of Daniel and talking about what it looks like to live in a culture and to live in a world in which there's an, this growing unease or tension. You know, what does it mean to really live as a follower of Jesus in a culture and at a time in which it's so polarized and everybody wants your allegiance, everyone wants you to be with them, and, and so what does it mean to really follow Christ? So if you have your Bible with you, open it up to Daniel chapter 3. This is where we're picking up the narrative here today. If you don't have a Bible with you, we'll go through it on the screen as well, but sometimes it's nice to actually have the, the text in front of you. So Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. Now King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits. That's 90 feet by 9 feet, just for reference point for you. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. 
it's an amazing picture. This, this scene that we're at right now, it, it takes us back a chapter, right? If you weren't with us last week, chapter 2 of Daniel, right? Nebuchadnezzar had this tremendous dream that kept him up all night of a statue, right? And that statue being made of various substances, the head was of gold, and all the others going down, and then it was destroyed by this stone, and that head of pure gold, but the rest of it weakening as it went down to the feet. And so then right here now in chapter 3, clearly they want us to see that connection back to the dream. Nebuchadnezzar has built a statue, and it's a very defiant act. This statue is not just the head is gold, the whole thing. The entire statue is of pure gold, the author wants you to see. Right? Nebuchadnezzar, in essence, is saying, my kingdom will have no end, right? I'm, this is, that dream, that prophecy, I can make sure that that doesn't come to pass. And it's a monstrous image, right? This, the dimensions and all of those things, and it's vague as to what it's of. Is the image of Nebuchadnezzar, is the image of a god, and it seems to be purposely unclear. The passage is really clear about everything else, how it repeats the names and the titles of everybody who's there and the different types of instruments, but the image, they want you to see it as very vague, and that's really fitting with Nebuchadnezzar and of Babylon at the time. What you see is this image that's really an image of accommodation. Anybody can make it anything they want it to be, right? You're coming from any province, any place, any religion. Just bow to this one image. You can, if you want to bow to your God when you bow to this image, go ahead. If you want to make this image about the emperor, fine. The king, then bow to it that way. If you want to make this an image to your God, then bow to it that way. Right, this, this idea of right, this, this central focal point and image that no matter what, whatever you believe, no matter where you've come from, right, here you go. Just bow before this image. And you can worship your God even in the bowing to this image. Which fits Nebuchadnezzar and his policy. He never took away people's religions. He never tried to stop those things. In fact, he tried to accommodate religions. And in some ways, you can see that this image is an accommodation of that. Here you go. Everybody will bow and worship centrally, one place, one thing. But regardless of what the image is of, right, everyone understands who's behind the image. The power behind the image is the king who built this and who is demanding and asking for everybody to bow to it. And the location of the, of the statue really matters as well. This plain of Dura, this, right, the reader would know or is supposed to catch, this is the same place where the Tower of Babel was in Genesis. The Nebuchadnezzar is putting up a statue in the same place that they built that tower back in Genesis with really the similar goals in mind. If you remember Genesis or if you know that story, if you don't know the story, the intention of building the Tower of Babel right, was kind of twofold. One, to make a name for themselves that would last forever. That we can make a tower that will last forever so we will have a great name. And the other hope of building that tower was that all the people would be together. And they wouldn't be scattered, wouldn't be dispersed. And so in many ways, Nebuchadnezzar is doing the same thing, with the same function, this lasting testimony to his greatness and to him and his kingdom, right? To make a great name for himself and for his kingdom. And also to provide a unifying focal point for his whole kingdom, right? Everybody can come together. I will bring everyone because his kingdom, just for context, right? It, at least in this, in this world, his kingdom was the entire world. Right? Everybody was underneath Nebuchadnezzar. 
So he's bringing all of these tribes, everyone, different races, different religions, different languages, and he's bringing them all together right at that spot where the Tower of Babel was and saying, here you go. We will all be unified together finally at last. Kind of an undoing of the Tower of Babel. Right here we go. We can all have this one place, this one moment where we can all be together. It's a very common practice. Common practice in the ancient world. Common practice now. If you've traveled in some countries, you know, it's a common thing to put up statues, to put up images of kings and of rulers. Uh, depending on where you are, what place you've been in. I remember when I was in college traveling through Syria. At that time, the president of Syria's image was just everywhere, every bus stop, every side of a building. You, know, you just see the image of the president because he wants you to see the image all the time. So you know, right? You know who you are supposed to be listening to. Or, you know, the, the statues of Lenin or the statue of Saddam Hussein. Or, I mean, this it's very common. It's a very common practice, it's, and it always will be, to set up these statues, to set up these reminders, to set up these focal points, right, where everybody comes together. And the pressure is not to get rid of your faith. Nebuchadnezzar isn't telling the Jews to forsake Yahweh, right? And that's never the pressure. And that's not the pressure today either in all of these countries. You can be a Christian in almost any country of the world. The pressure, right, is to make sure that you have your priorities straight, that you understand, yeah, you can believe in your God, but just don't forget, right, who is providing your safety, who is taking care of you. As long as you worship God through the state-functioned, sanctioned ways, you can do it, that's fine, right, but keep your priorities straight. Bow to the emperor first as you worship your God. Just remember who's allowing you to worship your God, right, just remember Right? Who is providing for you? It's this way to remind. It's not taking away a religion, but it's a way of subverting the power of religion. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So here we find out that three men didn't bow. Right? I mean, obviously, a huge scene. You wouldn't be able to notice. Three come, are, are ratted out by their co-workers, these Chaldeans. Right? These are the other wise men have come forward and told the king, right? Just so you know, those three men that you appointed, right, really also harking all the way back to kind of chapter 1 and 2, that got all that favor were put into a high position. Those three haven't done anything. They haven't bowed down. They didn't follow your commands. And they're accused, notice, of two things. The accusation really isn't about the bowing. The accusation is that they're not grateful for everything the king has done for them. Right? They're not grateful for everything you did 
and everything you continue to do for them. You don't show gratitude and their impiety. They don't show respect. They're ungrateful and they're disrespectful. Are you really going to allow this? And I would argue, right, in our, our culture today, it's still the same, right? There's very few offenses that get people as angry as being ignored and being snubbed, disrespected. When leaders, authority figures, right, feel ignored and feel disrespected, right? There's nothing worse. And then in 13, then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. Right? So he's willing to give them a second chance here. Well and good. It's all forgotten. If you just do this, But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? These famous words. Then we see their reply. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so... Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not, right? So the king flies into this fury and this rage which is expected, right? That's what you'd expect. He is being ignored and disrespected by the very people that he has just shown favor to, right? These are the last people he would expect to not go along with this command. He inquires, and he gives them one last chance, which is fairly gracious, right? I mean, the law was if you didn't do it, you would die, and here he gives them a second chance, you're like, okay, right? He's like, how much more gracious do I need to be with you guys? Are you still going to defy this order? And the answer is still the same. And that response, right? We don't need to defend ourselves. We have a God who will defend us. We have a God who will save us. And even if he does not, right? In that very famous phrase here, right? But if not, like our God will save us, but if not, we will still not serve your gods. And you don't catch that they doubt God's power to save them. Right? That's not the case. They know that God is powerful enough to save. They just prayed and sung that in the last chapter. They know that their God can save them. They know that he is not powerless. But they understood, and this is the theme of the book, right? They understand that if God is truly in control of all things... If he truly can work all things, then he can use all things for his glory, including their lives, but he can also use their deaths for his glory. They're prepared. They believe in a God who can use 
their suffering for his glory. That they don't need to be saved for God to be God, for God to be good. They haven't set up deliverance as a test of God's goodness or a test of God's power. They believe he is powerful. They believe he is good, whether or not he delivers them. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually or was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. So you see the king just boiling over with fury and rage. He was already upset. Now he's even further upset because of this testing of his power, of his abilities. Seven times hotter the furnace gets, and then the guards die from the flames. And you kind of get this, it's like ironic twist in so many ways of the story. The ones who are supposed to die, right, and we're going to find out really soon, don't die. And the ones who the king was supposed to save and protect, his men, are the ones who die. That this king does not have the power that he claims to have of life and death. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Here you have the great twist, the ultimate twist in the story, right? The guards have died, the three men have fallen in, and the king leaps to his feet, looks into the furnace, right, and sees not just three men, in the flames, unhurt, but a fourth man with them who looked like God himself. Looked like a divine being. Who is this in the flames with them? And you see this within that part of the narrative, right? God did not just save his servants from the fire. He didn't just pluck them from the flames. He didn't extinguish the flames. I mean, there'd be all different kinds of ways that God could have saved Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but he doesn't do it in those ways. He doesn't save them from before the flames like he had done with the dream, right? He saved them before the punishment happened. He doesn't save them beforehand. He doesn't deliver them out of it either, right? Nebuchadnezzar ultimately will be the one who takes them out of the fire. Rather, he joins them in the fire. God dwelling with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of the flames. It goes back to chapter 1, the hopes of those wise men, right, who said, right, could there ever be a God who dwells with man? And here you see it. You see a God dwelling with his people, dwelling with them in the midst of the flames. What a powerful image. 
Verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. That imagery, again, he pulls them from the fire, and then all of those people who are there to worship the statue gather around these three men and see them and see that they are not burned, they don't even smell of fire, the deliverance of them is fulfillment, right? It's, as a reader of it, you're supposed to see the fulfillment of the prophecies that were uttered long ago in the book of Isaiah. Right? In Isaiah 43, God promises this to his people, right? He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Here you see that happening. right? And again, God never promised His people that there wouldn't be floods, that there wouldn't be rivers, there wouldn't be fires. On the contrary, Scripture was very clear leading up to this and after this, and the New Testament is clear as well, followers of God will experience trial. That's what awaits trial and tribulation, the floods and the, the fire. The promise is that God will never abandon us or leave us. That our trials will never be meaningless. And then the king praises the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But he won't call him his God yet. Much like the last chapter, he acknowledges this God. He can see who this God is, but he's not willing right, to bend his knee to this God. And in fact, right, that command, this I will tear anybody who says anything bad about this God limb from limb. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, right? you just don't understand this God. You don't have the power of life and death. Right? That's what this whole narrative was demonstrating. Nebuchadnezzar has no power to kill or to protect life. The ones he was supposed to protect end up dying. The ones who were supposed to die end up living. You are not in control, Nebuchadnezzar. But he doesn't understand it yet. Not to spoil the story, he will in the next chapter. It's an amazing story of a lot of things. And you see within it this this imagery of conformity 
of bowing down. I mean, it's impossible to read this story without putting ourselves in the position of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? I mean, it's impossible to do that. As a child, I did that all the time when I heard this story. This is one of those really popular, right, Sunday school stories. I feel like everybody, if you grew up Christian, you may have acted out this story. You may have seen a skit of this story. You've watched videos of this story, right? I mean, everybody knows this story, and every time we hear the story, we put ourselves in the position of them, right, and ask ourselves that question, would I do what they did? Would I have bowed down? That outward display, would I have chosen it or would I have embraced that martyrdom, right, and death? Those are hard questions, obviously, to answer. I always felt, and I think I probably still would choose martyrdom. (laughs) As a kid, I always felt like I could do it, right? All right, I'll do it. You know, if death or, 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 you know, if, if it's that or forsaking God, I won't do it. I won't forsake God. I will, I'll embrace it. I'll be just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'll, if, but if not, go ahead and take my life. I mean, I grew up listening to stories, hearing the stories of martyrs, of, you know, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint. That story was really impactful for me. If you don't know that story of going to the, the Alka Indians in, in South, Af- South America and being speared to death, you know. Those martyr stories really affected me. And said, all right, I will do this. I, I won't, right? I won't. If there is a, if, right, if our president builds a golden statue of himself and makes me bow, I won't. That's an easy one. <laughs> but the reality, right, is much harder than that, much more subtle than this. Because the reality is, okay, some of those big outward moments, right, I won't. I refuse to bow down. But if I'm honest with myself, I'm, I bow down to countless idols on a daily level, right? Like the, that one ba- the big outward battle may, I may win, but inwardly I've lost that war of idolatry. There are so many things that I bow to. I bow down to countless idols in countless little ways throughout my life. And the reason that I do it, right? I conform myself. I bow down to the things that I think are going to bring me life, right? The reason that idols are so powerful for us, like why did everybody bow down to this idol? Why do I bow down to so many idols? Why do we all, right, find so many good things in life to bow down to? The, The issue is we believe the promises that our idols offer us. Everybody believed what Nebuchadnezzar was offering, It's why they bowed. It's why I bow. I believe that my idols can give me life. I believe that they can give me community. I believe that they'll bring me unity, that they'll give me meaning. They'll make me important. It'll give me comfort, right? It'll give me recognition. I believe them. C.S. Lewis, I was reading this week in preparation, C.S. Lewis writes in The Weight of Glory, one of his essays, how the strongest idol in any of us is our desire to be in the inner ring. That's what he describes it, the inner ring. The idea that we all want to be on the inside of whatever group, whatever circle, right, whatever ring we think. I I work in a school. I see this daily. I, I live it out daily, too, amongst the teachers. Everybody wants to be with the right group, wants to be associated with the right circle of friends, wants to be on the inside of something. I don't want to be on the outside. 
I want to be on the inside. And we create these imaginary lines that delineate where that line is of, all right, now I'm on the inside. Now I have the acceptance that I've been looking for. Now I have that community of people. Or now I have that recognition. Now I have, right, that verdict that I've been after, that I'm cool enough, that I'm smart enough, that I'm, right, or even that I'm holy enough, or I'm righteous enough, I'm faithful enough. We all want to be found on the inside of the circle, not on the outside, right? Who doesn't live like that with everything? And we have that fear, this fear of needing to be on the right side of things, whatever the issue is, right? Whatever the topic, I want to be on the right side. I want to be on the right side of history. I want to be on the right side socially. I want to be on the right side religiously. I want to make sure that I'm on the right side of things. I don't want to be one of those who is on the outside, that everybody on the inside looks at with judgment and scorn and disdain, right? That motivates me all the time, especially as a minister, someone who has a house church, right? As I talk to my neighbors, as I talk to people, right? I'm very careful with what I say because I don't want you to disdain me. I don't want you to think I'm one of those Christians. I want you to like me. I want to be on the right side of things. I don't want to be on the wrong side. And so I make little compromises. Right? I make little lies. I flub little things. I speak in a way to you that I wouldn't to somebody else, right? Because I really want you to accept me. I really want you to view me right. Don't think of me wrong. It's, right? it's so hard not to be motivated by that desire, that need to be right. And it's exhausting, right? You know this. It's exhausting to have to be right all the time, to be in the right groups all the time, to worry where that line is all the time, to know if you're in or if you're out, and to be sure you're in on the right group and not the wrong group. It's, it's tiring. It's tiring. But we do it, we work at it, because we also believe our idols' threats. Our idols threaten us with death, and we believe them. <laughs> we believe that if I don't, if I don't conform myself, if I don't bow down, I am not going to have a comfortable life. I will not have enough for my family and for myself. I will be isolated and alone. I, I, no, I can't have those things. So we conform. We conform to the expectations around us all the time. We conform socially, politically, with our religion. We, reform, we just conform in so many ways to the patterns of our world, to our culture, everything around us. <laughs> I may write not bow down to a golden idol, but right, that's just because my heart's already been won. That's the least of my worries. Which makes the good news of the gospel such good news. Because this is who Christ came for. Right? The good news of Christ, and this story points us that way because you read the story and you say, I, I don't know, I could do this, but I need someone who can do this better for me. The good news of, of Christ, and you see it in the story here, Nebuchadnezzar kind of gets revealed by God as powerless. The good news of Jesus is that he reveals the powerlessness of our idols. <laughs> this is what he came to do. 
Christ comes to set us free. He, he strips away the power of these idols in our lives. Whatever that idol is, if it's money, if it's power, recognition, anything, he, he strips it bare and disarms it and shows us that those threats were nothing. He faced all of those same idols that we faced, but he faced them even more. And he experienced the fury of our idols upon himself. When you think about what he went through, right, and this is the point of the gospel narratives, he was tempted. I talk about the temptation to conform, the temptation to bow down. Nebuchadnezzar, right, tempted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were tempted to bow. And if they bowed, right, they were promised, right, good jobs, security, all those things. Christ was tempted in the wilderness to bow down. Satan, I don't know if you know this narrative, Satan tells him, look, if you just bow to me, you can have the whole world will be yours. You will rule over the whole world. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego got to rule over the province of Babylon. Christ was offered the entire world, and he didn't bow. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went and had a court case before the king, trumped up charges, but charges they were guilty of. Christ went to court on charges that he was not guilty of. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, we don't need to give a defense to you. Christ just offered no defense, went silently like a lamb to the slaughter and endured the full fury of the rage against him. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into the furnace but they were not alone. They were not despised. If they would have died, the but if not, if they would have died, they would have died a martyr's death and inspired everyone, right? They were counted as righteous and faithful by the king himself and by us, by the readers. You would read the death of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and say, I hope to aspire to that kind of death. Christ, Christ went to his furnace weeping, and crying, sweating blood, not in the noble manner of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, or Daniel would, not, not like a martyr, not like Stephen, not, not strong in the face of death. Christ couldn't even carry his own cross. He went weak. He went despised and rejected. He couldn't even stay alive a day on the cross, only a few hours. A normal person, most people could stay alive for multiple days on a cross, not Jesus weak. His death was ignoble. Nobody would look to him and say, I will hope to die like that someday. Despised, rejected, accused of being a thief and a liar. <laughs> it was not a noble death. He experienced all of the fury that our idols promise to lash out at us if we don't bow to them. To take away everything from us. Christ endured it all. And he deserved none of it. And then what he demonstrates to us in his resurrection is that he can secure for us what our idols can never deliver. Right? He undermines the power of our idols. He shows that their threats are baseless and also that their promises are lies. Nebuchadnezzar cannot promise life. Money can't promise us life. Government can't promise us life and security. None of those things can. Only Christ can. Because in his resurrection, Christ secures the verdict that we were so desperate to get. Christ credits to us 
his faithfulness. He lives the life that we were supposed to live. He lives a truly faithful life, right? He lived the life, a better life than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? He went through far more temptation than they did, and he went through it far better than they did, and he deserved far greater of a reward than they did. And instead of claiming his reward, he gives it to us. Whoa, that's the good news of Christ and the gospel. I have the ultimate reward. Everything has been given to me who is faithless. Every other system, every other philosophy, everything our culture and our world tells you, right, is that you have to earn the verdict. You have to gain it. Your performance leads to a verdict. If you will be faithful, if you won't bow down, then at the end of the day, you'll get your reward. If you conform, if you just go along with it, if you work hard at things, then you will get it. Christianity is the only thing in the world that operates in the opposite way, where you get the verdict, and that verdict leads to your performance. Where Christ looks at us who are unfaithful, worshiping countless idols, I deserve all of the fury of God's wrath upon me and the wrath of my idols upon me, and instead, right, God, the true king of the universe, looks at me and says, this is my son who is faithful, who is righteous, and whom I am well pleased. And that won't change. I don't have to worry about being right. I am right. I've got the verdict that I'm so desperate for. The most rebellious act I think we can do today in our culture, in the place that we are, is to not need the praise and approval of others. To not need to be on the inner ring. Can you imagine that? Do you want to live that life, right, where you don't need constant praise and approval? Where you don't need the affirmation of everyone around you, where you can live a life that doesn't revolve around you, where everything isn't connected back to you, where you're not so worried about what everybody thinks of you, and if they think you're right or if they think you're wrong, you're worried about being judged, you're worried about their praise or their fury and rage against you, to be able to live a life of just quiet contentment, where you can actually love people and speak the truth and not have to worry about if they will receive your love and truth. To not have to be right all the time. To live a life of truth. To live a life of hope and confidence. And our hope and our confidence, not in us being vindicated. But our hope and our confidence in Christ being vindicated. That he's right. And because he's right, I'm right. That I don't need everything in my life to go well. I don't need to look at my culture. I don't need to look at the state of things. I don't need to look at everything and, and need things to go well. But rather, I believe that everything is well. Because Christ has made it well. 
and I can live in that quiet confidence, right, that says, like the great hymns, right, it is well with my soul, I can be at peace. In the midst of the turmoil, the fire of our lives, the tribulations and the suffering, that's the, that's the promise for us as Christians, right? There's no promise of not avoiding the furnace, <laughs> but knowing that Christ has already gone through the furnace for us, right? How much greater is that for us? How much more inspiring? The more and more we look at Christ and we see him and we see what he has done on our behalf and we see how he has conquered our very idols and all of the things that we bow to, the more and more we see these idols for what they truly are, powerless, lies. And we will stop being seduced by the, the lies of our idols and we will stop being afraid of their threats. The only thing that can provide us life and satisfaction and joy and hope in this present world of darkness and despair is Christ. So let's choose hope. Let's look at Christ and see him for who he is and rest knowing that we've obtained that verdict before the king. He looks on us. He looks at you and he is pleased. To live a life knowing that you have fully pleased your king. What kind of life is that? It's a life of joy. It's a life of quietness, but also being loud at times, but not because I need approval, not because I need vindication, not because I need to be right, but I can speak up for the poor and oppressed. I can care for those who are mourning Right, I can speak the truth. I can live my life without the need to be right. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for what you have done for us. Lord, we thank you for enduring the furnace that was meant for us, the death that we all deserve, and crediting to us the reward that you deserve. Lord, we confess to you how often we are seduced by these subtle lies of our world and of this age, of the comforts, the need for approval, the need to be vindicated, the need to be right, to be viewed properly by coworkers, by family, by neighbors, by everybody. We forget, Lord, so quickly how you view us. Lord, we're thankful for the reminders that you give us. We're thankful for your spirit within us that draws us back to you and that draws us into community to remind us of who we are, to remind us of your great love for us, to remind us that you are fully pleased with us. Lord, help us to live a life driven out of that love, not a life trying to earn that love. Lord, just strengthen us. Strengthen us to know you. Strengthen us, Lord, to let your love just permeate our entire being. Lord, help us. Strengthen us to overcome our idols more and more. Lord, we know that this side of the new heavens and new earth, we're, we're not going to fully experience that freedom. But Lord, we thank you for the growing freedom that you do give us now and that we are not hopeless. 
Lord, strengthen us and be with us. Lead us as your church in this world and in this culture to speak the truth, to love, Lord, to, to speak and herald of your coming kingdom, Lord, but not with desperation and fear, Lord, but with a confidence knowing that you are the one who has secured the future. Lord, be with us. In your name, amen.